Premier Christian Newscast. Hello and welcome to the Premier Christian Newscast. I'm Tim Watt and each Monday we'll be arriving in your podcast feed with a new episode exploring one story from the church or the Christian world and trying to go behind the headlines to understand what it really means. As you may have spotted, we've just had Mental Health Awareness Week here in the UK. It's become pretty commonplace now to see churches festooned with these green ribbons organising sponsored charity runs. But raising money and awareness of mental health is one thing. How well is the church doing with actually looking after the mentally ill people in their congregations? That's the question for this week's newscast. So how far does the church still have to go to become a safe space for those with mental illnesses? That's the question the mental health charity Kintsugi Hope wanted to answer with a new piece of research which came out this month. Kintsugi Hope surveyed just over 1,000 practicing Christians from various denominations and also supplemented this data with dozens of in-depth interviews with church leaders. Before we dig into the detail with some guests later on in this episode, I wanted to briefly run through some of their key findings from the research. 43% of those polled said that they had experienced mental health problems at one point. This is interesting and perhaps even concerning as it's significantly higher than the incidence of mental health difficulties in the wider population, which is generally thought to be about one person in four. Of those who said that they had experienced mental health issues, encouragingly, two-thirds said that it hadn't changed their relationship with their church. However, only 35% said that their church community had actually been actively supportive during their struggles. A full 91% of those surveyed told Kintsugi Hope they believed mental health was still stigmatised in the British church, and more than half said that their church rarely or never spoke about the issue. Only 1 in 10 Christians said that their church mentioned mental health at least once a month. When questioned on the causes of mental health problems, a majority said that they did not believe this was caused by sin, demonic activity or a lack of faith. This is obviously really positive, but while it's not widespread, the Kintsugi Hope researchers did find evidence that what they called negative lay theologies on mental health are still present in the church. Negative lay theologies are lines of thinking which come not from preachers or pastors or even from books and other mainstream resources, but nevertheless they still circulate among those in the pews. Even if they're not a majority opinion, they can still cause big problems for those who are experiencing various kinds of mental health conditions, as some of our guests will sadly testify to later. Four of these lay theologies were noted in particular in the report. One, that mental health problems are caused by a lack of faith. Two, mental health issues are seen as themselves sinful and rooted in selfishness or a lack of Christian joy. Three, that those battling with their mental health are somehow being punished by God for their personal sins. And four, that mental health difficulties are caused by demonic forces or are a result of spiritual warfare. Rachel Newham runs Kintsugi Hope's Mental Health Friendly Churches Project, and she explained that while there were encouraging signs, it was also clear that churches were not always safe spaces for people battling with their mental health. I think it comes down to a lot of lack of understanding and and a real shift, I think, in the way we've seen mental health care as well. So um, 
historically speaking the church was at the forefront of mental health care you know the oldest mental health hospital in the world is named after the birthplace of Christ the, the Bethlehem Royal in London um, but certainly over the last sort of 50 100 years there's been this real shift that actually mental health is something that only kind of medical professionals can can um, deal with and and the church kind of doesn't really have a role in that and then also this idea that actually somehow having a mental illness is, is incompatible with Christian faith. Um, there's a, um, an author called Marcia Webb who um, did a study in America around kind of um, mental and emotional health in the church. And she talks about these things called negative lay theologies, um, which explores this idea that, you know, it's not stuff that churches speak out about from the front and they won't stand from the pulpit and say you know um you can't be a christian and mental health have a health, mental health issue but a lot of the way in which we present the gospel kind of implies that so whether it be you know talking about you know anxiety cherry picking those verses kind of when talking about you know it says in the bible do not be anxious about anything um therefore that means that you can't have an anxiety disorder and be a Christian um, and actually those kind of things causing real damage because it means that people feel unable to talk about it when they're struggling and um, but they also feel that you know as well as anxiety perhaps being a presenting condition it's something that they is incompatible with their faith and kind of something to feel guilty about um, as well as things like you know, you have to be full of the joy of the Lord. And so not kind of feeling like depression is able to be something to be spoken about. Um, and I feel quite passionately that actually this is, it kind of does scripture a disservice apart from anything else. Um, and scripture is a lot more open and honest about emotions than the church is quite often. Um, and so I think that kind of language and, and the way in which even we talk about healing, you know, that kind of sense that you what you become a Christian and, and everything gets better in life whereas actually again we don't see that in scripture we see you know there's going to be trouble but God is with us that that's what um the encouragement is not that we should become Christians because life is going to be easy hmm. um and so what what were some of the headline findings from from your research that you've been doing that you, that you think are really important for people in churches to kind of take note of so I think one of the the key things and perhaps most pertinent things was we found that 91% of church leaders had had no training in mental health, um, either in their kind of ministerial training, but also in terms of their um, continuing professional development. And so actually this sense that it's not surprising our churches aren't able to kind of talk well about mental health because we don't talk about things that we don't have any confidence in and understanding in. And I think particularly the way the world is, the, the you know, the rising levels of, of mental illness and lower levels of mental well-being um, across the board mean that actually our, our churches need to be places where we're equipped. Um, that doesn't mean we all become mental health experts, but we need to kind of have a, have a working understanding of it. Um, both in terms of being kind of clergy, but also um, lay leaders and congregations as well. And that sense that, um, you know, whether it be something like mental health first aid or, <clears throat> but also understanding that the theological kind of implications of, of mental health and mental illness is mm -hmm. vital in order to create those safe and supportive spaces. Um, 
And the second thing was the need for, for church to kind of name its position almost on mental health and well-being. So throughout history, we've had this sense, haven't we, that the church has kind of made a standpoint on, on certain social issues, whether it be the slave trade or Black Lives Matter. Um, but actually, we don't do that with mental health. And there's not, I guess, a clear consensus around what we what the standpoint is. Um, and so the real need to say, actually, you know, mental health matters, it exists. And actually, it's, it is in scripture. The phrase mental health isn't in scripture, but the Hebrew word shalom of, of wholeness, completeness, well-being is writ right throughout scripture from um, Genesis to Revelation. And actually, how do we engage with that on a theological level? Mm. Um, so I think 56% of um, the sample told us that their church rarely or never spoke about mental health issues um, and actually that's a that's a real problem um, and being able to kind of use scripture as we talk about our emotions and, and be literate in that sense and then the final thing was about how we respond when people are struggling and so it this this kind of phrase gentle presence kind of popped out a lot and particularly in the um, interviews with um, Christian leaders that actually it wasn't about us the church fixing people with mental health issues but journey alongside them in the mess and um, embracing the mess and the tensions of, of life and and mental illness and not expecting um you know that it's all very well having a conversation about mental illness being just like a broken leg but ultimately there's some real shortcomings with that analogy because mental illness is very often chronic and there's not a set point at which you know you become unwell and then you're better um, it's something that people journey with and, and it will ebb and flow kind of over the course of their lives and so that real sense that you know in using the example of sort of Jesus um, with Cleopas on, on the road to Emmaus you know Jesus allows them to, to speak about their hopelessness um, and then he opens the scriptures and then he shares his brokenness with them as he breaks bread and that being a beautiful picture of actually what it means to be a gentle presence um, alongside coming alongside people who are struggling. I wanted to find out more from people with first-hand experience of living with mental health difficulties while being part of a church family. I wanted to see if their experiences had tallied with what the Kintsugi Hope research was uncovering. So I first spoke with Sally Jacobs, who is a coach. She organises retreats. She's a spiritual director, and she also has bipolar disorder. I began by asking Sally how she first realised she was struggling with her mental health. I had a breakdown when I was 30, and I was uh, part of leading a church plant at that time. And um, I'd... I, I basically was profoundly depressed and just going through the motions of life and of Christianity and, um, and didn't really know what was going on. Uh, and after I had a breakdown, I obviously was seeing mental health professionals and got a diagnosis of bipolar, which to be honest, scared me so much. And I really didn't know what it meant, but um, we're, I was able to look back over my life and get from late teens, um, I was a moody teenager. And then from onwards, I was just going high and low and high and low in quite rapid succession. Um, but again, just, you know, enthusiastic about life, you know, 
tired from life, enthusiastic about life. And so it went on and on and on and until I, I was just burnt out on it. And I just, uh, I just wasn't coping anymore um, because the, the, the highs got less and the depression got greater. Um, and had yeah. you been part of a church family throughout that time from your teen, yeah. teenage years? Yeah, yeah, I had done. Uh, and again, it, it was at that point, mental health wasn't talked about you know, and not at all. Um, and so, and so, and also, I mean, I'd trained as a nurse. And so I'd seen something of mental health patients, to be honest. And it just scared me, absolutely terrified me. I did not want to have mental health problems, not at all. And so there's that, as well as I'm a Christian and really I shouldn't have mental health problems, should I? You know, because mm. Christians don't. Um, was yeah. that something you felt from yourself or was that a message that you heard from people in the church community or, or from the pulpit? I think it was from myself, but also I think there from an absence of what, of, from what wasn't said, you know, in church, rather than what was said is what wasn't said mm. that, that really um, carved out um, my fears, I think. Did, did you find it difficult to be open and honest when you were first kind of diagnosed or did you did you feel like you had to keep that under your hat um well it, it was such a kind of car crash that everyone could see what was happening so um th there wasn't any hiding um and for me I think it was just a massive relief um just that I, I could stop pretending and it was devastating it was I mean for 10 years I was profoundly depressed and it was devastating. And um, I'd have some high moments, but predominantly depressed. And, and, and you just get through it, you know, you just, you just get through it. Did it interfere or did it intersect in any way with your own spirituality, with your relationship with God? That's interesting. I think, I think I... I knew that God was present because I'm God's omnipresent. So there's nowhere that God isn't, but I profoundly felt his absence. And so I, 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 I felt held in a very strange place. Yeah. Were there particular um, liturgies or songs or Bible passages that that you felt that you kept coming back to that kind of got you through those some of those darker times? Not really. <laughs> <laughs> no. Was it the community of others? Was it kind of Christian brothers and um, sisters walking alongside you? I find it. I found it hard to answer because I was very isolated, um, not in physically, I, I was in the church, but um, it was a, a, a church plant. So everyone was really young, like under 30. And so <clears throat> people just didn't have the life experience to know how to, to hold or to sit with or to, and they were, people were great with it, but they were scared because they'd not seen mental health breakdowns before. And so I definitely had some really solid friends who were just were constantly there, no matter how I was. Um, 
but as a church as a whole, I I just felt quite well. It's really interesting. I say quite isolated, but when I was in um, the psychiatric wards, um, I had people come to visit me every day for four months, wow. and that's extraordinary. And that that's then that's a church at its best when it can do something like that. Um, mm. So although I felt isolated, perhaps perhaps I wasn't so much as I felt. I also spoke with Mark Menel, who's an Anglican vicar and currently works for the international preaching and mission charity Langham Partnership. I was diagnosed back in 2005. We'd been uh, working in East Africa. I was teaching in a small seminary in Kampala in Uganda. We'd been there a few years Our children were very young uh, when we moved there. And I came back, um, we came back to the UK in 2005. And uh, within just a few weeks of settling into our flat in London, um, I started, I had a massive sequence of panic attacks and didn't know what on earth was going on. Um, And fortunately was able to see somebody, uh, a psychiatrist uh, pretty quickly who diagnosed a whole um, combination of issues and so I was put on medication immediately and since then over the time have been on medication and various talking therapies and other things so it's been a fact of life ever since 2005. And how did it affect your work at that time did you have to take time off work or did you have to kind of press on through it? Um I was very fortunate in that uh, I was about to take up quite a high pressure job, um, but um, the team was pretty conscious of, you know, having a tricky transition anyway, coming from East Africa, moving back to the UK, being in central London, all the rest of it. I think um, so it was fairly straightforward just to delay my start by a couple of months, I think it was. And that enabled me to um, get some help and get a bit of equilibrium, particularly through the medication. That's what that has always been able to give me is is a sort of equilibrium that enables me to to handle day to day, but also um, some of the therapeutic stuff. Um, So there was a lot of understanding, um, but I don't suppose any of us expected it to be quite a chronic thing. Hmm. How did you think you were perceived by that? church both the kind of colleagues and the wider congregation once you were known by them was it kind of a was it an open thing or what did were you quite private about what you were going through um it was pretty private apart from with the people who needed to know so the vicar and one or two close friends who were very sympathetic and understanding even though it was very alien i think um for them but i think fortunately one or two of them had known us before we went to East Africa and actually had, you know, at a distance walked us through one or two quite seriously traumatic things that happened. And so they kind of knew what they were getting when we came back. So they knew that I was a bit of a basket case and there were things that I was going to have to work through. So it wasn't a complete surprise, but I guess, uh, you know, the, the main thing, since looking back I think has been the fact that it's it's had repercussions for years rather than just weeks or months Mm. and what kind of repercussions have they been 
I think um, it's a good question. I, I, I think in a way I sometimes um, liken it to um, stress fractures in you know, high rise buildings or whatever, you know, engine, I'm not an engineer at all, but my understanding is that, you know, if they're looking for sort of hairline splinter fractures in concrete or whatever that can have devastating effects, even though by themselves on examination, they seem very, very minor. Um, I think what this sort of mini collapse did in 05 was to expose some underlying long-term, if you like, psychological habits and vulnerabilities that were always there and meant that there were going to be times particularly you know with acute stress or, or whatever there'll be pressure points that would put extra um, pressure onto those things and so perhaps make me less robust at dealing with some things than than others might be so I think it's sort of flared up at various points and one of the, th the things I've had to do is learn my limitations, what my triggers or, you know, for want of a better phrase, or what my um, sort of alarm bell circumstances might be. Um, and that, you know, that, that's just an ongoing process. Premier Christian Newscast. Premier Christian Newscast. A key issue in the research is how to uncover and unpick any remaining stigma there is about mental health in church. Will Vanderhaar is one of the directors of the Mind and Soul Foundation, another Christian mental health charity. I asked him whether those he knew who were experiencing acute mental health crises still came across hurtful comments about demon possession or it being God's punishment for their secret sins. Within the context of the church, I think what I'm seeing, certainly since 2012, when we had the Me Too, when we had the um, Time to Change campaign, which was a secular campaign run by Comic Relief to help reduce stigma around mental illness, that campaign changed people's approach to, to talking about mental health, um, largely in society, and I think the church has, to, to an extent, followed suit. I think it's generally deemed now as being bad practice to presume that someone's seriously injuring mental illness is somehow related to spiritual possession. But as the report that Consuli Hope have put together with Theos shows that there are still settings which, within which those ideas are propagated. Now, it's quite difficult because some of those settings have different theological views to others so one of the challenges of this conversation is you know we talk about church but church is as broad as mental health conditions are broad um some people would um you know run from the idea that supernatural forces are directly at work in our lives today in in, in that kind of encounter and other churches see that as entirely normal um and so where we see sort of a more exorcism orientated approach to spirituality you also tend to see a correlation to ideas that mental illness and its spiritual forces are you know are, are kind of you know prevalent so i think there's 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 a there's a sort of a, a need for contextual education which isn't derogatory and i think the other the other challenge here is that you sort of 
some churches set themselves up with an idea that they've got the answers and then 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 act in a kind of derogatory way towards other churches who have a different sort of theology so i think we have to make sure that we're offering these ideas if you like all these revisions sensitively and with with contextual dignity but but it's certainly true that some settings still strongly tie mental illness and uh, spiritual disturbance together and i think that's that's that that ultimately is most challenging for the for people who are experiencing these disorders mm. because they tend to feel stigmatized uh, or they feel diminished and they don't always get the best outcomes pharmacologically because they're often not taking the medications that are necessary to enable them to function well there's lots and lots of improvement in the kind of awareness zone i think that's 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 some something that is definitely shifting i think st stigma still exists I think there's still a number of people who feel that there are social stigmas within the context of the church that make them feel unworthy. And that, that doesn't always come from the pulpit. <laughs> it's not always that that's what the pastor is propagating. That's sometimes a sense within the congregation. And I, you know, as a pastor, it's easy to hear things like, oh, so-and-so is not doing so well, their mental health is a bit fragile. Um, now that might be a well-meaning phrase, but what it means often is that people then tiptoe around a person who has a mental health issue because they've been labeled as being a bit fragile, when actually the church has been built on the shoulders of people with mental health problems. You know, people like Martin Luther or Charles Spurgeon or William Cooper or Florence Nightingale or Mother Teresa. You know, these people all had serious injuring mental health conditions and the church is better for them, for those people. So this idea that sufferers of mental ill health are somehow weak wallflowers who've got nothing to contribute spiritually is a, is a major stigma but it's not often the stigma that church leaders themselves are offering and so this experience of how do life groups or small groups support someone with a mental health issue without if you like diminishing their contribution or making them feel um, disempowered uh, or if you like saying that they have to get healed before they can get helpful, that kind of an idea is quite common. You know, when you're better or when you're through your depression, then we'll let you welcome people. Or, you know, when you've got over your anxiety, then you can join the kids' work. Or, you know, when, you, when you've got a clear, you know, dying, you know, when your psychosis, you know, record is completely clear, which obviously you know, wouldn't be the case, uh, then, then you can contribute something to the life of the church. But until now, you just need to kind of keep quiet and keep the seat warm. It, invariably, that kind of mentality is, is common because people retain their own stigma and concern about what it means to live alongside someone who's got a, a mental health challenge. Mm. And actually, mental, people with mental health issues are just like everyone else. They just have a challenge like we all have challenges but their one has a label i then put the same question to mark menel if speaking about his own struggles had been met with any disdain or hostility um not particularly um hostile i think so if i dial forward to 2012 um with the full support of colleagues, I preached a sermon. Um, uh, we, we, we arranged a whole service um, around depression. Um, 
and in fact your father was leading the service and he was able to talk from personal experience you can edit that bit out if you don't want that <laughs> um but um but we arranged the whole service around mental health um and we had a slot um by a, a dear sister who has a phd in um mental illness in cancer patients so she did a section on on the medical side and then i did a couple of sex sections from the scriptures and we had this whole thing um and i kind of naively hoped that this would um just open not floodgates as such but just open the doors on talking about weakness vulnerability this kind of thing it didn't quite lead to that but it i did have a number of people who were really grateful that we were talking about it so openly and i was able in the course of my talks to talk personally but there were also one or two people um not so much hostile as um slightly disturbed by the fact that the 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 clergy the 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 vicar the minister was not as robust as they thought or hoped and perhaps needed him to be and i sometimes feel that maybe there are people who if they have their own battles in life they need one or two people up front if you like who they think well they're then they're more solid and stable than me and i can rely on them if they suddenly find out that um someone in in leadership or ministry is not as stable that can actually be quite threatening and undermining and so people are having to come to terms with that but it led to some good conversations and 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 so on um and then of course the usual thing some people who don't really get it and just think well you know why can't you just dot 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 and the sentence that begins like that is always um sends the alarm bells ringing did you have you ever felt that you've had to kind of suppress or even hide how you're really doing because you're wary of other people's response if you're kind of vulnerable and honest um yes and sometimes that's that's a, that's not a bad thing i think sometimes you know if we have a job to do um so for instance you know if if i'm leading a funeral that is not the place to sort of emote and pour out my own needs and weaknesses because i'm there to serve the grieving um and so you you know we all have to do this at points in life you suspend your own needs for the sake of others that's what love is i think the danger comes when that isn't just an act of charity if you like but it's a it's a habit it's it's a mode of operating that actually is very very harmful to yourself as well as others um so i think we need to just be careful that you can't just sort of lay everything out all the time you do that strategically with trusted people um and sometimes it's right not to say anything about where you're at um it's the loving thing to do actually is not to say something mm. um but i th- i guess all i would just say to folks is if that is all you do then that is a problem there's a lot more we could address from these testimonies and from the kintsugi hope research including the need for compulsory training on mental health for church leaders and probably better unpacking of scripture to break down some of those negative lay theologies but perhaps the key is where rachel newham landed finding that gentle presence I think sometimes we don't really know what the church's role is when it comes to mental health. Um, And so being able to say, you know, it's not our job to to diagnose, to fix people, but it is our job to to be there um, and and kind of embrace the mess of it. Hmm. 
one of the other things that jumped out when I was looking at the the stats from the survey was only 35% of those who've experienced a mental health issue agreed that their church had been supportive around this. Um, was that a surprise to you or does that, was that kind of what you expected to find? Um, I think it rang true in terms of what I had have observed and kind of known sort of anecdotally. Um, but it, it's shocking because it is such a, a low statistic that actually so many people don't feel supported um, by their church. And I think that that has to change. Um, and I think there's a whole, you know, with our young people as well, there's a whole generation of um, people who are far more in tune with their mental health and have far more understanding. Um, and if the church isn't a place that they can be supported in that, they're not gonna stay. Um, because it's such a key part of, of their life and um, as they navigate the world, actually, an understanding of mental health is, is really key. Sally Jacob said much the same. Yeah, I mean, very much. I, I was thinking about this. I was thinking, actually, all I really want is a friend, you know. I don't want official support, you know, like go to the pastoral team. I'm, I'm just not interested in that. But what I'd like is a friend. Oh, I was thinking of this as well. There's sometimes at church when I, I might be just weeping because of how I am. Or there's times when I'm rocking and I just rock for like the entire service. I'm just rocking, rocking, rocking. And um, and actually, it's the only time I really wanted to heckle as well. But that's another story. Um, and what I want is I just want somebody to walk past and put their hand on my shoulder. Do you know what I mean? And I don't need them to talk to me or sit with me, but just that recognition and that that touch to say, I see you and I care for you. Mm. Um, and so for me, it, it's little things like that. And, and I think I was thinking about people's fear. Um, and I think I think I think people are scared because they're not boundaried. So they don't know how to how to, to not get sucked into it themselves. Mm. And so people stay away because they're scared of, of getting sucked in. Um, but I, I was thinking about how, how it would be great to be in a home group. And just that home group knows that, you know, on Tuesday, I'll check in on Sally. Or on Thursday, I will. And have a, have a sense of a, a community um, that's boundaried and is checking in on and can offer friendship. Yeah. Mm. If someone's listening to this and they're kind of aware that they're afraid of mental health and they're mm. unsure about how they can be kind of good friends to, mm. to those in their church family, what, what, what kind of one thing would you say to them to push past that? What one thing could, could we do to kind of, if, if we're listening to this and we're a bit worried about how we can, can step up in this way? Yeah. I think I was wanting to say, don't be scared. But actually, to be honest, sometimes people with mental health problems are scary. Um, I mean, that's just the truth. So, so I think, so, so maybe what I'd say is, um, don't be alone. Well, you know, let two of you go and sit with them or chat. So, so you're not dealing with it alone. Um, and you're not overwhelmed by yourself, but, but you're with somebody else. Mm. So yeah, I'd say don't be alone. 
And for Mark, when things became really difficult for him, he also wanted above all his church family just to be present with him in the pain and confusion. I think to my mind, in my darkest moments, the the thing I've wanted more than anything else is accompaniment. Um, Metaphorically, but sometimes literally, um, I don't want people to try and sort me out. I don't need talking therapies unless I haven't got any, in which case one or two people maybe. But I think the assumption sometimes, not always, is that if you've got mental illness, you are completely incapacitated and unable to make any personal decisions whatsoever. Now, it may be that your ability to make decisions is impaired, but it's very unusual if it's completely incapacitated. Um, And some people are very high functioning with mental illness. So it's even harder to to spot, it's it's well disguised. So the crucial thing, I think, um, except in the very extreme circumstances, which needs professional diagnosis, the crucial thing is for the individual to feel that they have agency and they are able to say and invited to say what they want and what they need and what would be best. And so being available to a company without having answers, without even just having pleasantries to say. Um, And sometimes a a phrase that sends shivers down my spine is any sentence that begins something like, well, at least it's not dot, 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 which relativizes and and, and puts it in a box and stuff. Just just gentle, non-threatening questions, um, you know, sort of trying to get a sense of what it feels like. you know, and, and just saying, you know, let's go for a walk or, or whatever, but not assuming that you've got the magic wand and certainly not thinking that you can just give the word in season that will help someone snap out of it. That, that never happens. <laughs> so it's all about being there for the long term, not, not yes. trying to click your fingers and fix a person, but being there, as you say, yeah. to walk alongside them through their journey, however long it might take. So, I, yeah, I've summed it up somewhere. You're saying, you know, I wanted friends, not fixers. Will Vanderhart noted research in healthcare had shown that the first response to someone seeking medical care often would set the tone for their entire treatment journey. And the same had to be true of mental illness, too. However, he also cautioned against an overreaction to the church's bad history on mental health. It would not be much progress to simply lump a new set of unbearable responsibilities on pastors and church leaders for them to become everyone's mental health saviours on top of their myriad of other all-consuming jobs. Uh, As a first respondent, how I uh, dignify and value the person's testimony, that will set the tone, if you like, for their ongoing recovery. So how I hear them is the most important thing that I can first, how I first experience them and how they first experience me. Um, as a mental health first aider, I know how important it is for me to keep my, my awareness um, and my faculties together to observe what's happening and to try and respond with the person's, sort of the person's identity at the center of my journey. So it's not about me and my responsibility as a pastor, like to pastor them well. It's mm. me as my, my, my priority as an, uh, another person, as another human, to dignify them and enable them to get the help that they need. So I think 
if you like, the first response is not to drive anyone anywhere. It's, it's asking myself, how can I offer this person love and dignity in their distress? What we're looking for is a response of care and compassion from our churches to meet the, the ones, not the 99s. Um, I think there's a danger for church leaders themselves, many of whom experience mental and emotional health issues, and through the pandemic have been extended beyond their normal capacity, that then they're being asked to, if you like, be the fourth emergency service and somehow provide care that they're not equipped to provide or haven't got the emotional capacity to provide because they themselves are either untrained or emotionally too exhausted to really engage with. I always think if we care for our leaders, then our leaders are effectively at care, effective at caring for others. Um, and a lot of leaders out there at the moment don't feel like they've received that level of care and therefore they are vulnerable themselves. So I think there's a piece of work to be done on supporting church leaders, both in terms of training, but also in terms of their own care. I think Jesus said, you know, you, you, that if, if you like, receive a comfort, you know, share a comfort that you yourself have received. Well, that's Paul. I, you know, we, we, we're called to share a comfort that we've received from Christ. But if we haven't received comfort, we're not very good at offering comfort. You know, healed people or helped people help people, um, hurt people hurt people. And I think we need to see greater investment in, 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 in pastor and leader well-being if we're going to see this tide turn in the Kintsugi Hope research. Um, because just telling church leaders that they need to be educated better and do more isn't really going to cut it at this particular time. I think sometimes we've lost sight of the value of the alongside presence. Hmm. Um, and if we really want to help people with their mental health, we should, I think, think a little bit less about the medicalized and the psychological in terms of a replacement theory. You know, what can we do instead of these things? And start thinking much more about how can we be an alongside friend, enabling people, of course, to get the treatment that they need, but also just walking with people with compassion, patience, endurance, longevity, um, and valuing people like Jesus did, that would have the most profound effect on their mental health. That's all we've got time for on this week's newscast, but don't forget to subscribe to this podcast in whatever app you use to make sure every episode is automatically available for you when it's released. If you've enjoyed it, we'd really appreciate it if you could review Premier Christian Newscast on your app and tell your friends about us. We're a new podcast and so we'd love to get the word out as much as possible. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Premier Christian Newscast.